I invite you to turn with me uh, to Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. We'll be again here this morning to look at the text and the body of uh, what we refer to as a book, what some have referred to as a letter, but as I mentioned to you last week for consideration, uh, I believe that this is a sermon that the writer of Hebrews is presenting to his congregation. It may have been written down, it may have been passed around, certainly, but it was intended to be read, to be given out verbally, uh, with all power and strength and might that any sermon can be given to God's people as God's final word to those people. You know, we live in a time, a time in which people are pulled and tugged as we have been and continue to be as we listen to uh, things on the the media about uh, what works and what doesn't. Uh, People are pulled and tugged in every conceivable direction, it seems. We're constantly faced with, with questions about what to think, how to live, what works, and what doesn't work. Science, we're told, is what we need to pay attention to. Statistics, we need to pay careful attention to. Do we listen to our government officials in telling us what to do? trying to understand that the way they tell us those things that we need to do is based upon their wisdom and their best judgments. See, the world works on this formula. Whatever works, we are to do. Now, there's a big name for that. Matthew was looking at my sermon manuscript this morning and said, what is that word? Pragmatism. Some of you may be familiar with that Term that phrase, that philosophy, which tends to be the order and the day uh, of the world's thinking and practice. Whatever works, we are to do. Even if those things that uh, we are doing aren't right. That philosophy is filtered into the church in so many ways. Bible studies are presented, sermons are preached, and they attempt to tell us what to do, how to live. Not that those things are wrong. Those certainly aren't wrong. But when we look to those lists of things that we ought to do in order to maintain a quiet time, in order to have peace in our home, in order to have uh, a sense of of uh, order and structure within the in the church, how to share Christ, how to get more people in the church, uh, especially in this post-COVID-19 environment, what are we to do? People gravitate, it seems, I do, to what is practical, uh, to the uh, sections of the scriptures that seem very obviously to tell us how to live. I mean, the book of James, the letter of James, is often one that people go to 
that tells us very specifically how we ought to live our lives of righteousness. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in every one of his letters, gives us a very practical uh, way of living out our Christianity and our righteousness. But those words in Paul's practical sections of Scripture are based on doctrine, are based upon the very word of God. It seems that we live in a world where everyone's truth, whether it be scientific or personal experience, becomes equally valid. Acceptance that all views are real and equally valid becomes the most important social uh, practice and norm of the day. In this sort of world, it's insensitive, so the world says, and morally wrong to tell someone what to do. To tell someone that they are wrong. What this leads to, I believe, is moral confusion. The culture around us and so many within the church uh, are, are doing whatever works. And especially whatever works for them personally. In a world where everyone is trying to have the final word about what to do, God gives us his last word, his final word. He has spoken to us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, gives us a description of how God has spoken to us. Look with me there at those first four verses of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of glory and the exact representation of, of God's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made purification of sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they the grass withers the flowers fade and fall but the words of Lord God endure forever Heavenly Father, Almighty God, direct us, we pray, in our thoughts, in my words, in our understanding of how you have spoken to us, immediately and finally, in your Son, our Savior, the living Word, Jesus Christ. May we be people of your word as it directs us how to live and not people of the world living according to the way of the world and that is simply what works best for us. Father, we lift up our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now the writer of Ecclesiastes very briefly and very succinctly says, 
There is nothing new under the sun. The same issues that confront the people today confronted the people of the last uh, 10 generations and the last uh, 2,000 years. We're all cut out of the same uh, cloth, if you will. We're all the same sort of people. The writer of Hebrews writes to a group of people much like us, even here today. For these people, having moved away from uh, uh, Judaism into Christianity, many of these first listeners were tempted to fall back on ways that previously worked for them. Customs, worship, their living and life of every day. Often insisting that it was Christ plus something that brought them their righteousness and their salvation. Some even went as far, the writer of Hebrews will uh, tell us very directly, uh, as falling away from that faith that they had originally professed. Now we'll discuss how that can be, how someone can profess faith in Jesus Christ and then fall away from it. Well, the simple answer is that profession of faith was not a true and genuine profession of faith to begin with. Because we know that God holds firmly and securely those that He has called as His sons and daughters in Christ in the palm of His hand that they will never fall away, that they will never be lost. There's even some speculation here that some of these Christians, particularly that uh, the writer of Hebrews was directing these words to, were being led away from faith by a group uh, in the uh, Qumran community. A group of Essenes, if you will. I mean, if you're interested in looking them up, they were a group, a nonconformist Jewish group who lived in Qumran and that community. They placed special emphasis on ceremonial washings. They anticipated the uh, appearance of a great prophet, the second Moses, that we read about Deuteronomy 18. They sought a real and physical king to lead them like David that we're going to to hear and, and see as Palm Sunday comes upon us. The people rejoice that a king is coming to them, meek and lowly and riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of God's word. And these same people sought a prophet like Isaiah. Some of these people expected three separate persons fulfilling the office of prophet, priest, and king. They placed a a great emphasis upon the intermediary work of angels. Now we're going to briefly mention that today, but next week look in detail at that passage that comes immediately after verses 1 through 4 in Hebrews, where the writer spends a great deal of time talking about angels and the superiority of the one that God has given us as the final word. You see, there is nothing new under the sun. 
Even in ancient times, when people built the foundation of a building, they built it upon solid ground. When Reynolds Hall was built, you can see some historical pictures of how that began. Right now, we see the structure that is there. But then, when it was started, how was it begun? A hole was dug. A foundation was built. Concrete was poured. Reinforcement, steel was put in that foundation. Why? So that we would have a firm foundation for the walls that went up, for the building that is still there, and we trust will be there for many years to come. The beginning of every building is a solid, firm foundation, and it's no different than building upon the Word and building our lives, which are called buildings, the body of Christ. We are being put together stone by stone, brick by brick, into the building that is called that body. A building has a firm foundation. And the Scriptures give us a firm foundation for right living. What do we call that firm foundation? The scriptures. Foundation of right doing is right doctrine. Right theology lays that lasting foundation of right practice by God's grace. It's a starting point of the writer of Hebrews here. That's why he begins in this passage in these first four, what we have as verses actually is one long sentence that he gives to us. The starting point of the writer of Hebrews as he begins his sermon is not with an extended illustration as often I or or anyone who stands in this pulpit will give an illustration in order to engage you, to draw you in, and hopefully to get you to listen to the rest of the sermon. The writer of Hebrews begins here with doctrine. He begins with an extended uh, doctrinal statement. It's interesting that in the uh, middle part of the last century, a lady by the name of Dorothy Sayers. Now, some of you may recognize that name as an English uh, crime writer and poet. She was also a student of classical and modern uh, languages, best known for her mysteries uh, that she wrote, a series of novels and short stories uh, about uh, Lord Peter Whimsey, taking place sometime between the First and the Second World Wars. Students of uh, classical education she was, she uh, said this, Official Christianity of late. Now remember, different century, different time. Same people, same message. Has been what is known as bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine. Dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama, she said, that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. 
Where do we find that drama? We find it in the Word of God. Contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. If you're holding that Bible in your hand, that's what you're holding there. Our only rule for faith and practice. Teaching us what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. You see, it is right living. Not based on pragmatism. Not based on what works. But based upon the Word of God. The living, breathing, active Word of God. So, how is it that God has spoken to us? In this eloquent compactly concise introduction, this preacher of this sermon has divinely crafted one extended, long, introductory sentence, and what we have is four verses. Now, the the Greek doesn't have, uh, when it was originally written, didn't have the verses, didn't have the chapters, simply had the words. And oftentimes those words were, were put in capital letters, uh, compacted right up next to one another without spaces in between words. So you had to know your Greek pretty well. Here in these four verses, one long sentence, 72 words in the Greek, 106 in the English. I told you I was last week very particular about details. We find no fewer here in these four verses, these 72 Greek words, these 106 English words, 10 theological topics, doctrinal statements given to us from heaven to earth and from eternity past to eternity future. We find in the Greek alliteration, that is uh, words beginning with the same uh, letter, Uh, We find repetition of thoughts and catalogs of themes that are going to, to come before us as the writer presents this sermon to us. A list of these themes, I mean, looks like a a theology book, a systematic theology, as he goes through and reminds us about his primary purpose, and that is to assure us to continue to run the race set before us. Remind us as we run the race that is set before us to keep our eyes on the goal, on the prize. To continually turn our eyes away from the world around us, away from the things that work, and toward our author and perfecter of our faith, our Savior Jesus Christ, who is the living word. For God has spoken and he has something to say to the church, to us, His body today. See, what we need to keep in mind is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because He is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, we have every reason to put every hope and to persevere through faith and trust in Him and Him alone and not upon the things of this world. 
God spoke during the period of the Old Testament to his people, and many times the writer of Hebrews says, and in various ways, through what we, and the writer of Hebrews goes on later and calls these things types and shadows. How do we understand that? The sacrificial rituals of the day of the Old Testament were shadows of the reality of Jesus Christ. The ceremony, the rituals, the prophets, the priests, even the kings were shadows of the reality that is Jesus Christ. They were never intended for anyone to trust in those things, those shadows that had no substance for salvation. They were to trust in the one they pointed to as their only hope for salvation. Even though we go through sermons today, And we go through this sermon called Hebrews. We're going to hear about the superiority of the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have to remember that the time we live in is not better than the Old Testament. I mean, we still live with faith and trust in something that we cannot see. Right? I mean, Jesus Christ has walked upon this earth, but He has been resurrected to the right hand of God. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. You see, the New Testament that we have is in a way uh, concealed in the old. You've heard that phrase, the new is in the old revealed, the old is in the new Concealed. There's a dynamic relationship there that we have between the two periods of time, the old and the new. They are not separate periods of time. They point us to one and the same period of time. And we're going to hear the writer of Hebrews say over and over again about the superiority of the one who has come of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean there was anything inferior about the Old Testament because it's all superior. It's all God's special revelation to us. How has He spoken to us even today? All of this starts with these words. He is the one whom God has appointed heir of all things. He is the one who is Heir of all things. Psalm 2 verse 8. That uh, There's an extended reference to it in verse 5. But I think it even begins here. It says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. There is not one inch of this world that Jesus Christ, it has been said, does not call mine. Every inch of this world, this universe that we live in, is His. He has been appointed heir of all things. This initial proposition confirms the past, affirms the present, anticipates the future of 
the coming of Jesus Christ as our reigning victorious King. God has spoken through Him. He is the one through whom He has created all things. I mean, the one who creates a painting can call it His. Now, we don't create paintings or objects of pottery or objects of art the way God has created all things by the word of His power. Because He, in the beginning, created even the elements that the potter creates a pot with, that a painter creates a painting with. He created all things. And it is through Jesus Christ, through whom all things have been created, the writer of Hebrews says. Look at Hebrews 1.10. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He created all things. A wonderful statement in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He affirms here, the Father is the source of the created order and the Son is the agent by which those things are created. The Son to whom all of creation will be subject in the end is He through whom it all originated. He will gather all His pieces of work and art. You and me together there as He returns the final trumpet. How has God spoken? He is the one whose work is now completed, having been raised to the right hand of God our Father. Where is the position of power and authority? It is at the right hand of the podium, of the speaker, of the banquet table. Remember the disciples argued on that last night, Lord, I, you know, how, can, how can I be sitting here at, your, at this position of authority? This one whose work is finished, who has been seated at the right hand of God the Father, whose work is done and completed, is the radiance of the glory of God. That glory, immediately when we see that word, it draws to mind that Shekinah glory that went ahead of God's people in the Old Testament in the darkness of the night that led them in the wilderness. We can't separate the experience of looking at the sun, at the brightness of the sun, from seeing the sun Himself, because they are one and the same. We see the sun is to see the Father. Jesus said, you see Me, you have seen the Father. He is the exact representation of God's nature. How do we know God? 
How do we understand who He is? By looking at Jesus Christ. The way He's described in New Testament terms, He is the imprint. Some of you may have seen these little pieces of clay or, or uh, plaster of Paris that parents often uh, purchase when they have young children growing up that have a handprint or a footprint placed in those things. That imprint is the representation of that child. You look at people's children and you hear folks say, I see your mother or your father in your eyes and in your face. So it is when we look at Jesus Christ, we see the Father because He is the exact representation and nature of the Father. You remember when John, when Jesus was talking to His disciples and they were still a little confused about who he was and his mission upon this earth. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's standing there in your presence. God has spoken to us through the one who holds all things together. And this is truly amazing, I think, when you stop and think about it. At Stanford University, there's a, a thing called a linear accelerator. A mighty two-mile-long atom smasher. Not A-D-A-M, man smasher, A-T-O-M, atom smasher. It's a great, as been said, lever by which scientists try to pry the lid off the secrets of matter and discover what is in the miniature world of atoms and neutrons and protons. Linear accelerator scientists have discovered a great complexity they never dreamed of as they peer into matter and what has been created They find particles that they can't even uh, invent enough names for. But one thing they are consistently discovering is that there is some strange force that is holding everything together. They don't know what to call it. They don't know how to identify it. They talk about a kind of cosmic glue that holds things together. Isn't it fascinating? That here in the Word of God, we have the exact uh, kind of terminology used of Jesus. He is the one holding you together. Holding all creation together by the Word of His power. His name is Jesus. He sustains the universe by that powerful word. And that is not the idea of the sun holding up the weight of the world like some great Greek mythological character, Atlas. 
but rather here is the dynamic movement of creation through Jesus Christ moving things along, holding things together. How has God spoken? He has spoken through the one who has made purification for sins. If he had not done this, we would not be able to enter into his presence this morning. Jesus took upon himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin that we will consider in the next few weeks during uh, what we know as Holy Week, Good Friday, Palm Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. All of that took place because Jesus became the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Here is the one who provides purification for our sin so that we might be called the righteousness of God. Here is the one who is seated in that position of power and authority through whom we have inherited a more excellent name, or He has inherited a more excellent name than anything named and created upon this earth. His name is wonderful. His name is Jesus. His name is Mighty God, Everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. It is He that we come to as His Children, listening to this final word. See, everything we have in Hebrews even, and in the Old Testament in particular, describing the prophets who spoke God's word, describing the priests who officiated at the sacrifices of God's word and were intermediaries of God's people before His Holy of Holies, and came before God's people representing God. There's the kings of the Old Testament, particularly King David. Man after God's own heart. Every one of those offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king, are summed up in the one in which God has spoken to us through His final word. As the prophet, He has spoken God's final word to us, revealing to us by His word and His spirit, God's will for our lives. We don't need to look at the world. We don't need to look around and see what's working and then try to apply it to this place and this time. We need to look at His Word to us and see how we are to be organized, how we are to think, how we are to live our lives holy and righteous before Him. He is our priest who has offered up Himself as a sacrifice, satisfying divine justice, reconciling us to God. He is the one who has conquered both His and our enemies, who subdues them even now. As our King, He subdues us to Himself. What more do we need? We have all we need. Here in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, revealed to us in these final words. The world tells us 
Do what works. If it works, do more of it. The Scriptures tell us to do this. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I mean, it doesn't mean that we're going to get everything that our hearts desire. But it means that we're going to get everything that God desires for us. And we're going to get it for the right reason. And with the right purpose in mind. See, the writer of Hebrews tells us, keeps our eyes focused upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. There's a purpose for that. To keep our eyes upon Him. So that we will not look about us and become overwhelmed with the waves of the world that can so easily overtake us. And we will not grow weary from well-doing. Because we keep our eyes on the prize. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets in many portions and in various ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, oh, how easy it is for us to get distracted, to look to the world, the things in this world, for our life, our security, to tell us what to do and how to do those things. Father, make us Christians who are counter to the culture that we live in. Make us Christians who live our lives focused and centered upon the way and the words and the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May the words of the Old and New Testament truly be our only rule for faith and practice. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.